It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, November 15th, 2021, a brand new week here on the broadcast. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for being here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand as a podcast. It's free of charge, GuyBensonShow.com. We'll be taking the show on the road tomorrow and Wednesday from the Fox Nation Patriot Awards down in Hollywood, Florida. Looking forward to that. We will have some really good guests and lineups. More on that later in today's show. We'll give you a sneak preview. Also doing the program from Chicago later in the week. So we're busy here. On the fly but bringing you excellent coverage each and every day. On today's program, here is the lineup. Douglas Holtz-Aiken will be here, former CBO director. Not just on the infrastructure bill that is passed, is about to be signed into law just minutes from now, but on Build Back Better and this huge Democratic reconciliation scheme. Rumors that they might try to vote on it in the House without even a CBO score. Or a final score. What does that actually mean? What does that portend? We will talk to the former director of that nonpartisan organization coming up this hour. In our next hour, Mara Liason of NPR and a Fox News contributor. She's going to be here. And then Governor Chris Christie in our final hour. He's got a new book out tomorrow called Republican Rescue. We'll talk to the governor about that, some other political questions, and maybe A little personal stuff as well. Always a fun time with Governor Christie. Fox News alert as we begin the show. We are monitoring two different major stories right now, one of which I alluded to a moment ago. President Biden will sign the infrastructure bill into law on the South Lawn of the White House any minute now. And there are members of Congress and leaders from both parties that are there. And so as that occurs, we will follow it. We might dip into it. We are also watching the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Closing arguments are underway, and it looks like the prosecution just wrapped up literally seconds ago. Rittenhouse has now stood up. He has buttoned his jacket And any moment, his defense team will begin their closing argument. The prosecution just wrapped up, just finished. I've seen quite a bit of criticism of their closing argument. One of the arguments made by the prosecutor was that Kyle Rittenhouse surrendered or forfeited his right to self-defense by bringing a gun into that environment. As a matter of law, multiple legal experts said that is just not true. But that was part of the closing argument from the prosecution. Now the defense team will get their last word in before this case goes to a jury as some of the minor charges or less significant charges against Rittenhouse have been thrown out, dismissed by the judge. The big ones are still 
on the docket. The big ones are still in the offing. He could go to jail for a very long time, or to prison, rather. But we will get the defense and their last word here as this trial resumes and when it does. As it appears as though there's a bit of legal wrangling right now, the defense attorney is making some sort of argument to the judge. Prosecution is gesturing, but there's a slight break in the action here. Prosecutor at one point also referred to the crowd of rioters in Kenosha burning down the city as heroes. That's an interesting take. That's a hot, hot take from a prosecution that has, by most accounts, done a terrible job. But it's not up for me or you to decide. It's up to 12 people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after the defense makes their closing argument here. And we're watching that as it unfolds. So monitoring those two big stories this afternoon as we come on the air. Let me bring you another Fox News alert. And this is the alert that we always bring you at the top of the show. Statistics on COVID in the United States, 47 million cases all in since the beginning. Much larger number of cases in reality. The death toll of Americans with or of COVID over the course of this pandemic, 761,980. The Dow at this hour down 20 points. It is hovering above 36,000 right now, 36,079. Of course, less than an hour to go in the trading day. So as we await the president... Let's talk about the president. It feels like it's becoming here on the show something of a weekly tradition for me to devote an entire segment, a lengthy one, to the latest disastrous poll to come out for President Biden and for the Democratic Party. And this time around, this week's installment is brought to you by The Washington Post and ABC News. We've talked recently about the NBC News poll, which was really gruesome for them. Then we talked about the USA Today Suffolk poll, very bad for them. This Washington Post ABC News poll in some ways might be the worst one yet for a couple of different reasons. Let's run through a few of the numbers. The survey, national survey, has Biden overall underwater by 12 points on approval. A majority of the American people disapprove of his job That he's doing as president, 53 percent disapprove. On the economy, he's underwater by 16 points. His approval ratings in the 30s. Even on the pandemic. Right. A major basis for his election was he would handle the pandemic. Well, we'd crush the virus. Then build back better. He's underwater in this poll on covid. As we now turn our attention to that massive spending bill, the Democrat-only reconciliation bill that they're going to try to get through, 6 in 10, 59 percent, say that they're worried Biden will, quote, do too much to increase the size and role of government in American society. 59 percent are worried about that. Now, the poll also shows most support the bills, but there is clearly some cross currents here that are troubling for the Democrats. And then maybe the most astounding data point in this entire poll is the generic ballot, right? We call this the 
generic congressional ballot where they asked the American people, would you rather have Republicans or Democrats in control of Congress? And almost always Democrats have a lead on this. Traditionally, Republicans never have a lead on this. And if they do, it's modest. When you're going into an election cycle with Republicans leading on the generic ballot, get ready and hang on because it is going to be a bumpy, bumpy night for the Democratic Party. Well, in this same poll, Washington Post, where Biden, by the way, has a 35 percent approval rating among independents. Right. Independents swung to him. Independents swing elections, especially in battleground states. He's at 35 percent approval with independents, 58 percent disapprove. But on the generic ballot across all voters, it is Republicans, 51, Democrats, 41. The GOP is up by 10 points. That has never happened before in the history of the Washington Post poll. Republicans plus 10. Now, look, it's important to have the caveat that I feel like I insert all the time, which is we are still in November of 2021. 11 months from now, things could have very well shift, right? Politics often has uh, some sea changes that occur. Nothing is permanent in politics, and a year can be a very long time. So this is no guarantee of what's going to happen next fall. However, at this early stage, the warning signs are flashing bright red for the Democratic Party. The USA Today Suffolk poll last week that people were saying, this looks like an outlier. Republicans are up eight on the generic ballot in that poll. That must be an outlier. That seems pretty high. Well, then Washington Post said, actually, we found plus 10 for the Republicans. Just for some context here, and I wrote about this today at townhall.com. Remember 2010 when Republicans gained 63 House seats? They won the national House vote by seven points. They won the, if you want to call it the popular vote in 2010, imperfect term, but they won the popular vote in 2010 by seven points and they gained 63 seats. Washington Post today, their survey suggests Republicans have a bigger lead now than they did then. Back in 2014, another big Republican year, Republicans won the so-called popular vote by about five and a half points. They gained eight Senate seats that year, eight. Just last year, 2020, we all remember that election. Republicans trailed by seven points on the generic ballot. That was the average. Going into 2020, that election, the Democrats had a seven-point lead on the generic ballot. In reality, the Democrats only won the House vote overall nationally by about half of that margin. And Republicans, because of the way the seats were drawn, Republicans gained 12 seats, even though they were losing the House popular vote. All of that reference, all those reference points in context, I think helps demonstrate how dramatic a 10-point lead for the Republicans really looks like or could look like on the generic ballot. No guarantee it's going to be anything close to that a year from now or 11 months from now. But at the moment, this is getting to be a four or five alarm fire for the Democratic Party. A few more points on this poll. 
This is wild. Listen to this. So they had a subsample within the poll where they just looked at and isolated eight states that will have crucial Senate races next year. Because a lot of people seem to be expecting, even the Democrats, that they're going to lose the House. All the Republicans have to do is flip with less than half a dozen and they win back a majority. And history would suggest that they'll win more than that. So the House, a lot of people assume will be gone. The Senate, though, could look a lot more challenging for the Republicans. Doable. Knife's edge. Very close races all across these eight states, but, you know, not as easy as winning back the House, except listen to this in Arizona. These are the eight states, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Those are the states I think correctly identified as big Senate battlegrounds next year. In those eight states, what is the president's approval rating in those states combined? His average approval rating within those eight states, Biden, 33 percent, one third of voters, one out of three think he's doing a good job in those states. He is deep underwater in those states. What about the generic congressional ballot? Which party would you rather have running Congress? Nationally, in this poll, Republicans are up 10 in the Senate battleground states. Republicans are up 23. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Fifty eight percent say they'd prefer Republicans to control Congress in the states that will determine control of the Senate. Fifty eight percent Republican, 35 percent say Democrats right around the president's job approval rating. I think it is fair to say and fair to conclude right, I have deduced based on these numbers and some of the other polling that we've gone through on this show. That if the election were held, if these were the midterms coming up next week, right, tomorrow's a Tuesday, let's say, you know, you waved a magic wand and you had the election tomorrow. I think Republicans would easily win the House. They would win back the Senate and they would inflict a lot of damage down to uh, down ticket as well, down ballot on the Democrats. It would be a wipeout if the election were held next week or even next month. But the good news potentially for the Democrats is they've got a lot of time to make up some ground. The bad news is they've got Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the task, right? They're on the job. And in some ways, things could get worse. And even if things marginally improve for the Democrats and their fortunes and these numbers over the next 11 months, if the Republicans are even sort of in the game when it comes to the congressional ballot, Traditionally, that means that they're going to have a pretty big night regardless. So this is bad for the Dems. Last point. You might remember that there were some leftists out there and media types who said, well, if Virginia and New Jersey, if those elections had happened just one week later, it could have been different. Everything could have been different. Because they got walloped in Virginia and they almost lost New Jersey and they lost ground all over the place. And then That following Friday, there was a good jobs report. Oh, and then the infrastructure bill passed as well. Oh, isn't that great? Isn't that exciting? All of a sudden, the Democrats were racking up some wins. We were told we were assured by the smart set. If the election had just been a week later, Democrats would have done better. Except this poll that I just relayed all of the takeaways from some of these specifics, this new catastrophic poll for the Democrats from The Washington Post, it was in the field. After the jobs report, after the infrastructure bill passed, it is a fantasy 
that that would have changed the game because the polling bears it out. So that that lifeline, that wish casting that the Democrats and the media were clinging to, maybe this is finally the start of things turning around. Well, not according to this poll, which is dark, dark, dark for the Dems. And with that, we will step aside. The ceremony is just starting at the White House for the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan bill. That signing, we'll keep an eye on that. Rittenhouse trial as well. A very busy Monday. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson. A follow-up to what I was just talking about. Just the uh, destruction of the Democratic brand and the Biden brand in the latest Washington Post poll. That same newspaper has a story out yesterday about how the White House is convinced that they've sort of bottomed out here. Nowhere to go but up. It's bad. Things aren't good. We get it. It's a little gloomy, but we're going to be on the comeback trail here. And look, things can happen. Politicians bounce back. Trends tend to reverse. That's fine. But there are some structural problems within this administration and in the country. And when you let a lack of honesty and a lack of competence take root and people start taking notice of that and internalizing that, it has a way of sticking. And it can be very hard, awfully hard to shake. And even if it does get shaken, sometimes there's a lagging effect where it takes people a while to start sort of turning the ship of public opinion. And the Democrats don't have a ton of time, certainly, before the midterms, and things could get worse. Right? We'll rebound as a country at some point, but things could get worse, at least in some respects, in the coming months. So for them to feel confident that they're that they've bottomed out, I don't think they should be that confident. They said the same thing during the Afghanistan debacle. Remember that? That disgrace, they said, well, this is really bad, but this will go away from the headlines and then we'll be on our way back up. And that clearly did not happen. And the Washington Post writes that over and over again, 
Democrats now worry that the White House has repeatedly underestimated the scale of the challenges facing the country, which exacerbates the party's problems. Yeah, that is an understatement. And that goes to competence. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts available every day for free. Fox News alert. I said at the top, it's a busy Monday. I wasn't kidding. The ceremony at the White House is underway to sign into law. The president will be out there shortly to make the bipartisan infrastructure bill law. We just heard from Senator Kirsten Sinema, moderate Democrat from Arizona. We're now listening to Senator Rob Portman, Republican of Ohio. Both of them were part of the bipartisan Senate group that hashed out this bill that finally passed the House couple weeks ago, a few Fridays ago. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, the trial is back underway after a brief recess, and the defense has begun its closing argument on behalf of their client, Kyle Rittenhouse, who's charged with murder. We will take you live to the ceremony at the White House and to the courtroom in Wisconsin coming up later this hour and probably dip in next hour as well. But we are following both of these stories very closely. In the meantime, we are joined by Douglas Holtz Aiken. He is the president of the American Action Forum, and he was the director, former director now, of the Congressional Budget Office. And uh, Doug, it's great to have you back here. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The reason I wanted to have you on is because the CBO is going to be in focus in the coming days. I saw a tweet that CBO put out that they believe that by the end of this week, they will have a score, so to speak on this uh, non, I should say, purely partisan uh, Democratic spending bill, the reconciliation bill, build back better, human infrastructure, uh, whatever you want to call it. Some House moderates or more moderate members of the Democratic caucus had said that they weren't willing to vote on any package until the CBO had a full score. Then there were reports that some of them would be fine, maybe not with a complete final score, but at least more information from the Congressional Budget Office. If you could just share some insight into what this process looks like, and to your knowledge, is it rare or has it ever happened before if there's a multi-trillion dollar piece of legislation that doesn't have a final CBO score for that bill to get a vote in the absence of the score? That seems pretty wild to me, but I don't know if there's precedent there. 
there certainly is precedent. So on on the books, um, Congress should have a score of any piece of legislation prior to taking a vote, but uh, rules like that are easily waived, and they've been waived many, many times in the past, uh, even for very large uh, pieces of, of legislation. So the uh, many people thought that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act should have a full dynamic score, look at the impact on the economy, feedbacks on growth and, and revenues. Uh, that did not come out until two weeks after it was law. And so, you know, there, there's lots of precedent for even very large and important piece of legislation to move ahead without a score. I'm pleased to see that they are, in fact, waiting for a score. This is, uh, this is something where we have been reliant on administration and treasury scoring of the things that they say are in there. And there are really two issues with that. Issue number one is that the CBO exists because Congress decided they could not rely on the administration having the, the only budget estimates, and they wanted to have their own uh, institution to do that kind of hard work. That's why the CBO is there. And so I don't think they should trust the administration's estimates. They should get their guys to look at the bill. The second is the CBO scores what's written down. It doesn't score what they'd like to do, what they hope to do, or even what they say they do. They score what's written down, and you'd be stunned at the number of times there's a mismatch between what's actually in the legislative text and the way people have been talking about it. Often that changes the, the dollars involved enormously. So certainly in this instance, I think uh, we've had scores on what the administration says they think it should do. We should get scores from the CBO on what it actually does, and that's what they're up to right now. So I think that's all very interesting, and I think that's really important color as we look at what's upcoming here and I think that the first of the two points that you made is crucial because, of course, an administration, and in this case, it's the Biden administration, but any White House would love to say, hey, we've got this big project that we've got planned and we are going to put this proposal. We'd like it to become law. Please vote on it. Here are all the wonderful, uh, wonderful things it's going to do. Uh, these bad things that you may have heard about, uh, it's not going to do those things and it's going to cost exactly what we say it's going to cost and sort of set up their own success using numbers that they have determined themselves. But it's within their interest to perhaps twist those numbers a bit or to shade things in a positive light or the most positive light possible in order to achieve a political end. That is not the CBO's job, right? CBO is nonpartisan, independent to actually do the math so people don't have to rely on the say-so of any administration that, you know, by definition – is trying to get their own agenda through, right? I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Part of the criticism that I've heard over the years of CBO is that, yes, they analyze the numbers that are in front of them, but the numbers that are put in front of them sometimes are themselves already manipulated in order to get the CBO to say something that is desired, even if it's sort of a distortion of the true cost of a piece of legislation. And that is not unique to Democrats or to Republicans. It's sort of some of the gamesmanship that happens on Capitol Hill. Can you talk to us about sort of the gimmicks here? What should we be on the lookout for when the CBO presents their score of this bill? What do politicians sometimes attempt to make sure that their political ends and the CBO official numbers are in alignment, even if with more context and a wider lens it's really not that simple at all. So the easiest one to look for, the one that we know will be in there, is that they will take a, a program they intend to be permanent, say the child tax credit, and simply have it last for two years and then magically go away. Um, 
the CBO is required by law to score the legislation, and it cannot anticipate the future action of Congress. The future action of, act, action of Congress would be to extend that program. That's exactly what the Democrats want. But CBO is not allowed to, to do that. They're, they have to take the legislation at face value, and so they pretend those programs go away. That makes the, the cost look a lot lower than it would be if all the programs were made permanent. And that's part of, quote, using CBO to get the answer you want. You give them legislation that's, that's full of those kinds of timing issues. Uh, there's an antidote for this, of course, which is if one side is going to use the CBO for partisan purposes, the other side should get into it as well. And so the ranking member on the Budget Committee in the House and the Senate should send the CBO director a letter that says, saw you put out a score. Thank you very much. What would that score be if this program was made permanent for 10 years, that program was made permanent for 10 years? Just simply write out exactly what they want CBO to assume, and CBO will do that calculation and release it. And then you do have the information you want, which is, what are we really committing to as a nation when we pass this legislation? When it comes to the Democrats' reconciliation bill, what are some of the pitfalls that might be in there? for the Democrats? Because it seems like the leadership and some progressives really didn't want a CBO score. Like, let's just pass this thing out of the House, and then it'll go over the Senate, and we'll see what happens. The the House moderates or more moderates say if there is a major discrepancy between what the White House is telling us the numbers look like and CBO, then we might not be on board anymore. What might go wrong? What could go sideways here? I think the biggest risk is that one of the programs they, they've drafted turns out to be way more expensive than they anticipated. Uh, and for me, one of the harder pieces in there to score, and the one where the biggest risk is, is in child care subsidies. Uh, child care is very expensive, and if they were to make child care an open-ended entitlement, which they are, uh, and if you take research done uh, by people outside the, the Congress seriously, it could cost $1.7 trillion just on child care alone. So um, what they've do- it'll be interesting to see what they've done in writing the child care program to make sure it doesn't get that expensive, because the, the actual drafting we haven't been privy to, and, and we, I would like to see what they're actually scoring and how they keep that cost down. Yeah, and so that's one of the moving parts of this. There's also, we mentioned this on Friday, politically, a few major vulnerabilities, including by putting these assault deduction tax breaks back in, undoing something that the Republicans did a few years ago, that amounts to a, a significant tax break for millionaires in blue states. And there's uh, a nonpartisan group, the Tax Policy Center, that says that there are tax increases on the middle class in this bill. So the Democrats could be, we'll see what the CBO says, but they could be raising taxes on millions of middle class families while giving a tax break to a lot of millionaires. That uh, could create, I mean, the attack ads write themselves. Uh, and so I, I, this thing is not done. This is not tied up with a bow on top yet. And the CBO score is going to be one of several important elements as this process plays out. That's why we brought on the former director of the Congressional Budget Office, Douglas holtz He's now the president of American Action Forum. Sir, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson Show. When we come back, we will dip into the White House South Lawn Ceremony, the signing of the infrastructure bill, a separate piece of legislation. It's a bipartisan event right now over at the White House. We will also take you to the courtroom in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where the defense attorney, Mark Richards, for Kyle Rittinghouse, is making his closing statement to the jury. We'll listen to some of that. It's all coming up. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Fox News alert on the Guy Benson Show as we are back. We've heard now from multiple senators, including Chuck Schumer. Speaker Pelosi has now taken to the lectern on the South Lawn of the White House as President Biden will sign the bipartisan infrastructure bill into law just moments from now. Let's listen live at the White House just briefly. Here's Speaker Pelosi. Oh, she just finished, and you can hear Hail to the Chief. Biden making his way across the South Lawn for some remarks, and then he'll sit down, and what they usually do is have a bunch of pens, right? And they sign these big pieces of legislation with pen after pen, little portions of each letter, and then they give away the pens as part of a, like, a party favor to a lot of the stakeholders. It's President Biden flanked by the Vice President, Kamala Harris, Those two have an interesting relationship based on a CNN story that came out yesterday. We're going to tell you much more about that in the next hour. We're going to read to you from the story. I think having them walk out together, clearly, they're trying to send a message about unity and happiness and one big family here. Uh, Not the case behind the scenes at all, based on the CNN reporting. So we'll watch uh, the president and the vice president here. In the meantime, another Fox News alert. The Rittenhouse trial is nearing an end in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Earlier today, the prosecutors made their final arguments to the jury, explaining why, in their view, he's guilty of murder and should go to prison. Now his lead attorney or part of his defense team for Kyle Rittenhouse, Mark Richards, is addressing the jury. In that courtroom in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the country is riveted to this case. Let's listen to defense attorney Mark Richards as he tries to persuade jurors to bring back and hand down a not guilty verdict across the board. Let's listen live. They have the burden of proof. We don't. They want it to be that Kyle was out there doing something improper. Kyle was a 17-year-old kid out there trying to help this community. He was asked to provide help in protecting property at the car sources. It started and he did it. He did provide aid and he was asking if anybody needed aid. Whether somebody chooses to accept that aid, that's on them. But Mr. Binger wants to poo-poo his sincere belief that he's helping people because he borrowed bandages from 
Dominic Black, and I think he might have borrowed something from Lakowski also. But in the picture, when the Kandiri poses with all the people who are gonna protect his property, there's Kyle's big orange gator box. He's got his pack on, filled with things, and he's willing to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, Kyle was not an active shooter. That is a buzzword that the state wants to lash onto because it excuses the actions of that mob on the 25th of 2020. Whenever Kyle was there, he reacted to people attacking him. There's numerous times, and you'll see him on the video, he does not shoot. He runs two blocks from 63rd to 61st, scene two, without firing his weapon. Individual hits him in the back of the head. He does not turn around to address that threat. Huber takes a swing at him with the skateboard like that. Kyle blocks and the skateboard's knocked out of his hand. He doesn't turn around and shoot him. He keeps running and falls from the two hits. He's run that far and yet somehow he just fell over on his own. As soon as he's on the ground, they're there attacking him. And you see the people. The law of self-defense, you've seen it, you've heard it. Now I'm gonna go through the witnesses. Oh, Dominic Black, first witness, charged by Mr. Binger for providing the gun to my client. Two counts, looking at up to six years in prison. His case has been adjourned so that he can help the state. I don't think he helped the state that much. I think he was a pretty truthful witness, all in all. He told them about Kyle there to help people, that they had permission from the Kandiris, that he saw Kyle help the woman with the foot, help the person with the hand. Mr. Binger wants to just say, oh, that doesn't matter. If it wasn't Kyle, it would have been somebody else. The point is, he was there and he did it. There was no pointing by Kyle of any laser sight. There was no ability for Kyle or him to point laser sights at anyone because their guns didn't have the type of optics that did that. He said Kyle was there to help. The only person helping was Kyle. And he can say what he wants about whether or not he let Kyle take the gun or not take the gun. He never told him not to. He went to the location with them. They bought straps at Jelensky's together. He's trying to cover his butt a little bit. The guns were there and they took them. They took the guns, as he said, to deter people attacking them. He saw Kyle at the end, sweating, was in shock, and said, that is the voice of Mark Richards, defense attorney for Kyle Rittenhouse, as he has begun his closing argument to the jury, talking about self-defense. And they're going to start walking through witness by witness what the witnesses said. And the defense believes the eyewitness testimony plus the videos equal not guilty, equal self-defense and therefore an acquittal. We'll see if the jury agrees. Meanwhile, Vice President Harris 
is speaking at the White House as the president, minutes from now, will sign into law the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Stay with us. It's The Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour of The Guy Benson Show now underway. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow closes down 12 points today, ending at 36,087. We have another Fox News alert. We finally have President Biden out there at the microphone. Big crowd at the White House as he's about to sign the bipartisan infrastructure bill. He says that it is proof that Democrats and Republicans can come together to do big things. There are a number of Republicans in the crowd. Let's listen just for a moment to the president of the United States live on the South Lawn. You know, this law was supported by business groups, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Business Roundtable representing 200 of the largest corporations in America and other top business. I want to especially thank, and I'm sure you all, as we used to say in the Senate, I stand point of personal privilege. I want to thank organized labor who understands this about jobs. Y'all stood up. Jobs, 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 jobs. Special thanks to the AFL-CIO, the United Auto Workers, electrical workers, the IBW, the iron workers. It goes on plumbers, pipe fitters, and the building trades, steel workers. Who would I leave out? (laughs) Pardon me? And my wife is a member of the union, the NEA. I'm going to get in trouble. Machine is so many more. Look, folks, for too long, we've talked about having the best economy in the world. We've talked about asserting American leadership around the world with the best and the safest roads, railroads, ports, airports. Here in Washington, we've heard countless speeches and promises and white papers from experts. But today, we're finally getting this done. So my message to the American people is this. America's moving again, and your life is going to change for the better. If you live in one of the top, if you live in one of the 10 million homes, or you're a child with 10 All right, so that's uh, President Biden here. He's talking to the assembled crowd. A lot of partisans on his side, but some Republicans as well, as he prepares to put pen or in this case, probably pens to paper and signed the bipartisan infrastructure framework into law. And then uh, the whole conversation will shift to build back better in the partisan bill that the Democrats would like to pass. They will have no Republican support on that front. That has become very clear. Joining us now to break this all down, react to what we just heard and a few other things as well. It's Mara Liason, national political correspondent at National Public Radio and a Fox News contributor. Mara, great to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Guy. Well, you could hear a bit of a jovial atmosphere at the White House. This is an accomplishment for the president, for Congress. There were dozens of Republicans who voted in favor of this legislation as well. And this is the bill signing ceremony. Now, it's up against this uh, Rittenhouse trial. So a lot of the networks have a picture in picture going on. How significant is this bill signing to the president 
Is it something that would move the needle? Some of the polling so far doesn't suggest that it will. But the White House obviously is trying to highlight in a significant way something that they see as a win, hoping that will translate into improved political fortunes for the president. Right. Well, it's definitely a policy win. This is something he ran on, not just physical infrastructure, something he said the country's been in bad need of for decades, but the fact that he could produce a bipartisan agreement. This was a bipartisan bill, uh, and I think that that's a victory. This is what his brand is supposed to be about. Now, it comes kind of late. His approval ratings, as you said, have dropped for a number of reasons. One of them, maybe, was that he didn't produce something like this earlier on. Uh, But there were Republicans there today. Uh, The Republican approach to this bill has really changed. Uh, This was something that Mitch McConnell voted for, uh, decided that this would be the one place that that Republicans and Democrats could come together. But since then, Republicans, at least in the House, have been uh, basically trying to punish anyone who voted for this infrastructure bill because they felt that it gave a political win uh, to Joe Biden. But we don't even know if it's going to be a political win for Joe Biden. As you said, you know, his numbers have been bad. And the history tells us that passing policy accomplishments doesn't always translate into political benefits. Well, especially because very popular as the infrastructure bill is. Right. Because this could be like, you know, a fleeting blip and it gets washed away quickly in a news cycle. And immediately the recriminations begin about the next bill that the Democrats are going to try to pass, which has now been decoupled from the bipartisan infrastructure bill. What the progressives did for weeks, might have even been months, was to basically stall the process saying we're not going to allow this bipartisan thing to get passed until this other huge spending bill of our party alone also gets passed because we don't trust the Senate. We don't trust these moderates. Eventually, that strategy just petered out. It wasn't going to keep working. It was no longer viable. This is now, you know, an achievement where you can have members of both parties show up and clap and say, oh, look, we work together. I wonder if that helps or hurts the likelihood or the prospects for the Build Back Better Democrat-only reconciliation bill that's next up on the docket here, next in line. What do you think, Mara? Well, it's hard to tell. Progressives clearly thought it would hurt it. In other words, that's why they held the infrastructure bill hostage for as long as they did. They thought that if they held it up, they could get agreement on it in return for voting for uh, agreement on the reconciliation bill in return for voting for the infrastructure bill. It didn't work. There were Democrats like Terry McAuliffe, who lost his race for governor of Virginia, who was saying, please pass this bill so I can go home and say, look, you know, the Democrats delivered. We're going to rebuild this bridge in your city. Now, when you talk about it getting washed away because the next a uh, big fight is already happening about uh, the Build Back Better human infrastructure bill. That's not the end of this. If Democrats are successful, they will be out all over the country explaining to people what this bipartisan infrastructure bill means for their communities. That's something that's been really a, a failure of the Biden administration, is they haven't been able to communicate to people what they have done. There are a lot of people in America who cashed $1,400 checks and have no idea that that was the result of a Democrats-only bill. No Republicans voted for it. Uh, and they also are getting $300 a month uh, child tax credits. Uh, for each kid. So the Democrats feel that they have to do a better job 
in selling everything that they pass. Now, it still might not work. Maybe other things are more important to people than these uh, than these. Uh, I think that's the problem. Yeah, I, it's a lot yeah that, that's my sense of the problem, right? Because you can say, okay, I got this check, and they're going to do some bridges. That's fine, but you add everything else up, you know, whether it's certainly inflation and economic pain and supply chain disruptions, and then people are unhappy with the border, they're unhappy with the way Afghanistan happened, that all kind of spirals. And you can try to counter the spiral the way that you're describing, Mara, but at least so far, you look at the new Washington Post poll out yesterday, which was taken entirely after the infrastructure bill passed. And, you know, after there was a good jobs report, it was devastating. We ran through some of the numbers at the start of the show. There is a very sour mood in this country. And with the Democrats in charge of all of Washington, a lot of that sour mood is being projected onto the party in power, which is you know typically what happens. That's right. Typically what happens, there are so many things that are hurting the Democrats, it's hard to know how much to to assign to each one. Some of these things were beyond Biden's control. The Delta surge, the ensuing inflation, and the supply chain problems, those are kind of beyond his control. Afghanistan and the border, those are more within his control. Uh, Then there's the the failure to explain what he was doing to people, uh, you know, and explaining what were in these bills. Just because the infrastructure bill passed doesn't mean that everyone's glued to their television sets and all of a sudden will feel good about Joe Biden. Maybe the Democrats are hoping if they can send people out around the country in a sustained way over many weeks to explain uh, what's happened, they can change things. But they've got a lot of things against them. History is against them. As you said, people generally turn against the party in power in the first midterm. President's approval ratings are against them. They're very low. Um, redistricting is against them. Republicans could pick up all the seats they need in the House just through redistricting. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a long list of obstacles for Democrats this year. I want to ask you, Mara, about some kind of palace intrigue that's been in the news cycle here. And I'm going to read at some length later in the show, later this hour, from a CNN report involving real tensions, it sounds like, between the president's team and the vice president's team. And her folks are, are not happy with the way they're being treated and the way she's being treated, the way she's being used or not used. Um, you know, Other people sort of circling already, wondering if Biden's going to run again. Would it Harris be the heir apparent? If not, should they try to take her down a few pegs, even though she's the sitting vice president? Uh, I'm not sure how much resonance that story has beyond sort of beltway types and, and political obsessives, but it also is not necessarily indicative of a healthy culture at the White House right now when you have just a massive leak fest. There were dozens of people quoted in the CNN story about this battle within the White House between the, the president and the vice president's teams. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, you know, usually vice presidents don't get a tremendous amount of attention. Joe Biden didn't. Vice President Pence didn't. And there also, it's been a very long time since the vice president was the obvious heir apparent, even though they have a leg up because they've served in the White House. But I think that Kamala Harris is a special case. She's the first African-American, South Asian female vice president. Uh, because Joe Biden is so old, there's tremendous speculation that he either won't finish his term or the, that he will decide not to run again. So she gets a lot of attention. She's also been given a very large substantive portfolio of issues to work on. None of them are easy to solve. They're all kind of no-win assignments. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of grousing from her team off the record to reporters. Uh, what, do I think this matters in the long run? 
Uh, no, I don't think people follow this. But I do think the, the big takeaway from this is if there is an actual Democratic primary in 2024, Joe Biden doesn't run, uh, this is not something that's going to that she is not going to be anointed the next Democratic nominee. It will be a real primary. Yeah, no, there are people already clearly spoiling for that battle. And I think a lot of people think that that battle is coming because my my guess, again, this is just an educated guess. My guess is Joe Biden will not seek another term. Um, you know, that, that's my guess. A lot of things can change. I think he will continue to say that he plans to seek reelection until he doesn't. Right. Um, and he might. I, I could be totally wrong, but I think it's telling that clearly there are a lot of high level Democrats who seem to share my suspicion about where this is going and the the jockeying and the knife fighting is sort of already underway less than a year into this presidency. I'll get into some of the I would call them juicy details of that CNN story coming up later in the hour. But for now, we will say farewell to Mara Lyason, who's national political correspondent at NPR. She's a Fox News contributor. Mara enjoyed it. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Mara Eliason here on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back, just tremendous interest in this Rittenhouse trial. The closing arguments are underway. We will bring you back to the courtroom and listen to just a little bit more of the defense importuning the jury to acquit their uh, their client, Kyle Rittenhouse, back to Kenosha after this break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And with news breaking out everywhere, here's a Fox News alert. It's now official. The president has signed into law the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And he was surrounded by people. Folks were clapping and smiles. This is a bipartisan bill that is now officially law. And as I said, the eyes of Washington now turn ahead to the Democrats' tougher project, which is they want to spend trillions of dollars with no Republican votes at all on what they're calling human infrastructure. So uh, a win today is how the White House would present this. Uh, of course, plenty of people disagree, but the bill signing has now concluded. Fox News alert. Rittenhouse defense attorney Mark Richards is still speaking to the jury in Kenosha, Wisconsin, passionately making the case that his client is innocent and should be acquitted on all charges, including murder charges. Let's listen again, dipping in live to the courtroom in Wisconsin and listen to the defense as he makes his closing argument. This is Mark Richards. James Armstrong. The only thing I can say about James Armstrong is, okay, that's interesting. But what I'd like to say about his photographs, his knowledge of what he did, and some of the statements that the state has made regarding it is, what he did for those 20 hours is hocus pocus, and he makes an exhibit that is out of focus. And that's what the state is relying. The, the picture does not make sense. As I showed earlier, it has Kyle shouldering the gun in the left shoulder. If he has it in the left shoulder, his back would be to the drone. The drone is moving around and that changes the focal point. He's right-handed, that's where it goes. You'd see the crosses across his chest. But no, they need him to have somehow 
pointed a gun at the Zeminskis. I don't for a minute concede he did, but we know that Mr. Zeminski has been armed all evening. How would pointing a gun at Mr. Zeminski provoke Joseph Rosenbaum, who, according to the state, earlier in the case, they didn't even know each other. But I think they had to run away from that because there's so many pictures of them together. Mr. Armstrong's photograph, testimony, it took three days and 20 hours worth of work to come up with that picture. It went from color to black and white, and he admitted he never compared it to the original photograph. Still shot. Didn't take into consideration the fact that the drone was moving. The word peer-reviewed, status said. Peer-reviewed is an independent verification of the events, the exhibit. So there was no testimony to this because it didn't happen that Mr. Armstrong's coworker did 20 hours on the same photograph and came up with the same result. It didn't happen. When you see, and I'll show it to you later, when you see in the video the mirror and the shininess of the mirror, that's what that is. And by going around, spending 20 hours and bringing things up, it doesn't account for Kyle's arm, it doesn't account for the heat signature of the gun, none of it. That's Dr. Mark Kelly. Richards. We're listening to his voice live from Kenosha, Wisconsin, one of the defense attorneys for Kyle Rittenhouse. And they're in the weeds there on some specific elements of you know, video and images. And this is the last opportunity for both sides. The prosecution has already finished. This is now the defense turn. The de- defense has the chance to make and present their strongest arguments to the jury and send them off into deliberations with their most important points in mind. And they can go through point by point with rebuttals and make their best case for acquittals. And we want to bring you just a little taste of what they're arguing in the courtroom today, as this trial will soon go to the jury with America watching closely. It's the Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. Log on, GuyBensonShow.com, all your program needs right there, including the free podcast every day. I'm trying to think about the last time I enjoyed a CNN story as much as this one. I'm going to read at length from a piece that dropped yesterday, last evening, and immediately created shockwaves throughout the political sphere, especially in Washington, D.C. Headline, Exasperation and Dysfunction. Inside Kamala Harris's frustrating start as vice president. So prepare yourselves for this glorious story, because things are not going well in the Biden administration. You know that the president's got his problems. And now there seems to be this feud developing within the administration between whether it's personally Biden and Harris themselves and or their staffs. I mean, it is the feel good story of the year. I see all of this exasperation and dysfunction, as they call it, and it's just sort of like, oh, what a shame. 
And also, who could have seen this coming? This forced political marriage between the soon-to-be octogenarian and the extremely ambitious but perhaps under-talented vice president who just a few months prior to joining the ticket had suggested that the man at the top of the ticket was in fact a racist and perhaps a sexist. Themes that come up in the CNN story. Let's read. Worn out by what they see as entrenched dysfunction and a lack of focus, key West Wing aides have largely thrown up their hands at Vice President Kamala Harris and her staff, deciding there simply isn't time to deal with them right now, especially at a moment when President Joe Biden faces quickly multiplying legislative and political concerns. The exasperation runs both ways. Interviews with nearly three dozen former and current Harris aides, administration officials, Democratic operatives, donors and outside advisors who spoke extensively to CNN reveal a complex reality inside the White House. Many in the vice president's circle fume that she's not being adequately prepared or positioned or instead being sidelined. The vice president herself has told several confidants she feels constrained in what she's able to do politically. And those around her remain wary of even hinting at a political future and future ambitions, with Biden's team highly attuned to signs of disloyalty, particularly from the vice president. (laughs) She's a heartbeat away from the presidency now. She could be just a year away from launching a presidential campaign of her own, given doubts throughout the political world that Biden will actually go through with a reelection bid in 2024, something he's pledged to do publicly and privately. And I will just, as an aside say, as I've said before, I would be surprised at this stage if he runs again. He has to say that he's running. He has to raise some money. He's got to give the appearances that he at least might run again or else he's already a lame duck. And the jockeying begins in earnest. That would be not great for his presidency. So at least the appearances of a reelect have to be maintained for a few more years. But it sounds like a lot of people share my view. They don't buy it. And so that skirmish is already underway, including inside the administration, which can be quite toxic. All right, so the story goes on here from CNN. If he runs, picking this back up, Harris will be a, quote, critical validator in three years for a president trying to get the country to reelect him to serve until he's 86. Few of the insiders who spoke with CNN think she's being well prepared for whatever role it will be. Harris is struggling with a rocky relationship with some parts of the White House, while longtime supporters feel abandoned and see no coherent public sense of what she's done or been trying to do as vice president. Being the first woman and the first woman of color in national elected office is historic, but also has come with outside scrutiny and no forgiveness for even small errors, as she'll often point out. So she sounds kind of uh, mad about this behind closed doors. She feels like she's getting a raw deal. It's not fair. Whatever she does or said, if there's a small mistake, it's all blown out of proportion. I think that she kind of has this backwards. I know, and this will come up again. It's like, oh, well, this is sexism. This could be racism or a combination. This is just a double standard or a series of double standards. Except the press very much would be inclined to be supportive of her. Just the way they were with another history maker that they absolutely adored, Barack Obama. They love that guy, and the coverage flowed from that adoration. She just isn't very good. She does not have the skills or the likability or the authenticity or any of that stuff. That's the problem. It's what Democratic voters learned pretty early about her when she ran for president and didn't even make it to Iowa. 
in the Democratic primary process. We made this point last week. We were talking about Jimmy Kimmel because he was also making some of these same identity-based excuses for her. But I think in some ways the dynamics, those dynamics, could work in her favor if she were just better at this. Lord knows the press would like to be very friendly toward her. She's just making it really hard because she's not good. (laughs) The story goes on. Defenders and people who care for Harris are getting frantic, CNN reports. She's perceived to be in such a weak position that top Democrats in and outside of Washington have begun to speculate, asking each other why the White House has allowed her to become so hobbled in the public consciousness, at least as they see it. An incumbent vice president should be a shoe in the next time the party's presidential nomination is open. But guessing who might launch a theoretical primary challenge to Harris has become an ongoing insider parlor game. Other politicians with their own presidential ambitions have started privately acknowledging that they are still trying to figure out how to quietly lay the groundwork to run if and when Harris falters as they think she might. Let me remind you, we are less than one year into this administration, right? We are still just 10 months into this administration. And already this thing prints out, the CNN story, prints out to 15 pages where you had dozens of people lining up to talk to CNN about all the grievances About Kamala, from Kamala, people gunning for her, people figuring out what they can do to have an advantage when Biden doesn't run. We're 10 months into a four-year term. Already this stuff is happening and bubbling to the surface and spilling into the public eye. It's not healthy from the Biden White House perspective, but it's the reality. So the story goes on here from CNN. Republicans and right-wing media have turned Harris into a political target from the moment she was picked for the ticket. Yeah, that's, by the way, what happens. When someone gets picked to run on a presidential ticket, the other party makes them a political target. That's not unusual. It's literally how politics works. This is not some sort of, oh, oh my goodness, look at what these awful, rotten Republicans are doing. They instantly started criticizing her when she joined the ticket. Yes, yes. Be crazy not to. She wasn't popular. She was a vulnerability in some ways. Now, here's the line. Implicit racism and sexism have been constant. I think a lot of this is just a crutch. It's a crutch to make excuses, not just from some of her outside admirers, but from her team itself. And some of the implicit racism and sexism, they actually lay at the feet of not Republicans or the right wing media, as they call it, but the White House and the president's team. Skipping ahead a bit. In the story, they talk about how even though Biden says that she's the last person in the room for major decisions and she says the same thing, quote, that's not exactly how things have played out. She's attended some meetings with Biden, hosted with key lawmakers when it comes to trying to whip votes and that sort of thing. But there were many more that she didn't attend to the point that it was noteworthy. She made an unscheduled drop by during one session in the final stretch of negotiations over the infrastructure bill. She just showed up. She decided that she needed to be there. I guess she wasn't invited, so she rolled in. A lot of this is just straight out of Veep, really. It's like they're treating that show as a documentary path forward for this vice president. Harris has also complained to confidants about not being given a greater part of the president's approach to the Afghanistan withdrawal. Despite telling CNN at the time she was the last one in the room when he made that decision, leaving her without more to draw on when she defended him publicly. I want to just linger here for a moment. Imagine wanting more power or more influence over Afghanistan, given the way that that went. I think what this is, is her effort to distance herself from what happened. 
because at the time she wanted credit, right? I was the last person in the room. She said that publicly. Now we've seen how it all went. And she's like, oh, actually, CNN, I was very frustrated about not having more of a a hand in the way we were going to do this. She is basically stiff arming the White House and the Biden team saying, oh, no, that that was not me. Again, these are not good signs, ladies and gentlemen, if you are the Biden White House. When Biden picked Harris as his running mate, he was essentially anointing her as the future of the Democratic Party. But now many of those close to her feel like he's shirking his political duties to promote her and essentially setting her up to fail. Her fans are panicked, watching her poll numbers sink even lower than Biden's, worrying that even the Democratic base is starting to give up on her like they did when she ran for president. So already the woe is me is starting here because these are people close to Harris making these comments and these complaints. It's Biden's fault. Oh, he's setting her up to fail. Well, he is also failing. Not like he's just, you know, skating here, galloping to great approval and public approbation. And everyone loves the guy. And he's just sort of making a point to throw under the bus. The whole operation is flailing. She's part of it. She's also not personally very popular. But they want an unpopular president to somehow save her political fortunes. A lot of this is preemptive excuse making, scapegoating, finger pointing. So the knives are out for her, obviously, which is why we got this story in the first place. But then the knives have been sharpened within her camp, within her realm as well, to stab back. So you've got this bloody internal fight already, I'll remind you again, 10 months into year one of four. Although Harris has told confidants that she has been enjoying a good working relationship with Biden, those who work for them describe that relationship in terms of settling into an exhausted stalemate. Now, listen to this. This is a fun, juicy, little delicious nugget. Suspicion has sprouted out of the bitterness. Last month, White House aides leapt to the defense of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who was being hammered with outrage by Fox News host Tucker Carlson and like-minded pundits for taking paternity leave after the adoption of his twins in September. Harris loyalists tell CNN they see in that yet another example of an unfair standard at play, wondering why she, Harris, didn't get similar cover any of the times she's been attacked. Quote, it's hard to miss the specific energy that the White House brings to defend a white man, says a source close to Harris, a former aide. I think that this story, while it is being overall seen as an attack on Harris, might have been planted by Harris, which is, of course, an insane miscalculation, which would be very much on brand for her because she's very bad at this. (laughs) Yeah. What I love is that the left and the progressives don't know how to argue without identity. So when you put this person on your ticket, the only reason, by the way, is identity, right? Checking the various identity politics boxes that they prize over on the left. You want to get the credit for checking those boxes. But if that person, the box checker, starts to feel unhappy or disillusioned, or underappreciated, then guess what she's going to lean on to push back, just like she did on the debate stage when she suggested that you might be a racist. She's going to go right back to this well because it's the whole argument that they have. They've forgotten how to argue about anything else. So rather than 
her own unforced errors and her own phoniness and lack of likability. It's, oh, look how much they defended Mayor Pete, now Secretary Pete, when he was under attack, and they didn't do that for us ever. Must be nice to be a white man getting defended by this sexist, racist, Democrat White House. Unlike us, a woman of color, where's that defense? I mean, this is this is the jugular that they're trying to go for here using identity politics. The list of complaints, back to CNN, between the West Wing and the vice president's office keeps growing. And they go through example after example. She was very unhappy about the border assignment, obviously. How's that going, Madam Vice President? The story mentions that the DNC hired a consultant to try to help her and her image and her portfolio. Quote, that has not been going well either, according to people familiar with Harris's staff rarely relying on them. Then we have the blaming of the press in this story. It's the media that's biased. It's their fault. They're chasing, quote, incessantly negative stories and playing into undeniable structural issues of race and gender. There it is again. I think she planted this story, and it's not going the way she wants it to, but the grievances are all out there. She might have thrown this first punch, and I wonder if we're going to get some pushback, some more anonymous leaks, and some ugly stuff about her. Not just from the White House, but maybe some of her future rivals like Pete Buttigieg, who clearly still thinks he'd be a great president. Imagine how bad you have to be as a Democratic politician to decide that the real problem is the media's bias against you because you're a woman of color. Give me a break. But this is the direction that they've gone as they air some of this dirty laundry. And you've got this subheadline much deeper into the story. Harris's closest aides frustrate even her. Harris has personally complained about the lack of support internally and externally. Sounds like there's just a lot of griping going on. And I want to bring you to the one paragraph that I think is the most telling of this entire CNN story. Next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on The Guy Benson Show, reading from the CNN story about Kamala Harris. And this, to me, is the key paragraph. It's short. Let me read it to you. Quote, with many sources speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss the situation more frankly, they all tell roughly the same story. Harris's staff has repeatedly failed her and left her exposed. And family members have often had an informal say within her office. Even some who have been asked for advice lament Harris's overly cautious tendencies and staff problems, which have been a feature of every office she's held from San Francisco District Attorney to the U.S. Senate. This is definitely planted by Harris. And she has been failed. She's not failing. She has been failed by her staff repeatedly. That's the problem, she thinks, and her defenders. Failed by others, except here's the thing. Staffing issues, quote, have been a feature of every office she's held from San Francisco DA to the U.S. Senate and now the vice presidency. What is the common denominator? Who is the common denominator throughout all of those races and holding all of those positions. <laughs> that right there is the common denominator. If you have staff issues with staff failing you at every single level of government as you keep failing upward, using your gender and your race to climb the ladder of identity politics, maybe it's not the staff that's failing. Maybe it's not the staff 
different groups of people every time that are to blame. Maybe it's what they call in Washington the principal. Maybe it is Kamala Harris who is the problem. She does not seem to recognize that. I don't think she could ever acknowledge that. And I think she desperately wants to be president. So if Biden doesn't run, dislodging her ambitions in favor of someone else who might be less unlikable and more likely to win, that's going to be awfully hard. And we can see the playbook of how she will go on the counteroffensive identity politics, which is very potent on the left. Oh, man, there's not enough popcorn in the world as you read this story from CNN. And it's from CNN, too, which makes it even more fun. Toxic work environment. That's what it sounds like over at the White House. And the polling seems to reflect that. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Don't go anywhere. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern and available for free on demand around the clock. GuyBensonShow.com. All the ways to listen live there and, of course, to get that free podcast. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. We actually introduced some friends to the Long Drink for the first time this weekend. They were big fans. They're heading back to Colorado. They're going to become consumers. TheLongDrink.com is the website for that beverage. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. We are joined once again by Chris Christie here on the show. He was the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey, a Republican and author of a brand new book. It comes out tomorrow everywhere. It is entitled Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Governor Christie, welcome back. Happy to be back, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start on the book. And you've been seeding this message now for months. I've seen some of your speeches, some of your public comments, building up to the release of Republican Rescue and some of the concerns that you have. And on the back flap, you lay out really the fundamental questions that you think need to be answered by Republicans, not just the party, but really voters of the Republican Party, the rank and file, the faithful. You ask this, why did we lose, talking about 2020, and what do we need to do differently to make sure we win? So before I ask you any more specific questions about the book or your thesis, why don't we just start there? Why did we lose in your opinion, talking about the Republican Party, and what does the GOP need to do differently in whether it's 2022 or certainly 2024 to achieve a different outcome? Well, I think, listen, we lost in 2020, I believe, for two primary reasons. Uh, the first was uh, you know, the White House's response to COVID, which I think in the beginning was slow and was a little tone deaf. 
in terms of how concerned people really were um, and and what that response was in terms of saying it was just going to go away. When the weather got warm, it was going to get better. Um, and, and, it, and people just thought that the White House was not providing the type of leadership that they wanted or needed um, for COVID. Um, and governors, by contrast, guy all over the country, whether they're Republican or Democrat, no matter which approach they took, the, the more severe shutdown approach that Democrats generally took or, or the more open approach that Republicans took, no matter who the governor was, they did very well in terms of their ratings with the voters because they seemed engaged and, 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 and on top of things. And to many voters, the White House didn't. And really, except for Gavin Newsom, Donald Trump was the only executive who saw his ratings going down during COVID. Second piece is I think that we lost a lot of white suburban educated voters who were turned off by the president's personality and approach um, to dealing with some of the problems in the country, not from a policy perspective, quite frankly, but just from a personal perspective. And I think that both of those things were the, were the main drivers of us losing the election in 2020. And then, obviously, in your view, a pivot would be necessary. We just saw Republicans racking up victories and making significant gains just, what, two weeks ago almost exactly two weeks ago, in elections in blue states and elsewhere, has the pivot already happened? Or are there some things that need to happen in your mind in order for the Republican Party to win some national elections coming up, not just a few sort of uh, precursor elections? The pivot has begun, but has not been completed. And I think Glenn Youngkin obviously showed in Virginia that if you talk about the future, if you talk about things that parents care about, like education, if you talk about things that hard-working, middle-class voters care about, like eliminating the grocery tax, these are things that were big issues in Virginia that had nothing to do with national Republican politics, per se, but had everything to do with the quality of life of people in Virginia. And he ran against an opponent who was still talking about the past, running a majority of his, of his commercials about Donald Trump. Um, and it didn't work when contrasted with a Republican who provided the type of conservative, smart vision for the future that Glenn Youngkin did. And the same with Jack Cittarelli in New Jersey, even though he fell short by about two and a half points, um, that race was a 15-point race two weeks out. He closed incredibly strong, and for the first time in years, Republicans picked up seats in the state legislature, in both houses of the state legislature, and narrowed the Democratic majorities. In both of those cases, neither of those candidates had President Trump in to campaign for them, I think because they feared he would be talking about the past, about his allegations about election theft and all the rest, and they knew that that's not what voters wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about what are our plans for the future of Virginia and New Jersey. If House members and Senate members and gubernatorial candidates in 2022 keep that in mind, um, and most importantly, if the former president would keep it in mind, um, I think we'd see smashing victories for the Republican Party in 2022. Well, we've seen that the former president doesn't have that in mind. In fact, just the opposite. He talks about 2020 constantly in his public statements, in the email blasts that he puts out. We heard that recent interview, the excerpt with John Carl for his book, where he couldn't really bring himself to criticize the people who were chanting for the hanging of his vice president at the time, Mike Pence, on January the 6th. It seems like he is all in on the stolen election theory, and so is a lot of the base, Governor. I gave a speech recently where I was talking about some of the real gains being made by Republicans with actual results 
fortifying those points. And when it got to Q&A, almost every question I got was about voter fraud and stolen elections. And I did my best to answer them thoughtfully and talk about some of the reforms made in places like Georgia and Texas. But I think that there's at least a lot of people who just do not believe, and probably some people listening to us right now, do not believe that Trump really lost last year. And I'm trying to figure out how that can be reconciled, especially when you've got a lot of folks, including Trump himself, very invested in that story. Well, I think that's part of the reason I wrote the book. Because as you know, in the middle section of the book, we deal with a lot of the kind of conspiracy theories that have been out there, conspiracy movements, QAnon, Pizzagate, um, birtherism, and, and the election stuff. And I think, you know, in the election chapter, I just go through what the facts are regarding what happened. And the facts don't support the idea that there was, uh, you know, this election was stolen. And, and so I think we have to be out there saying it. We can't be afraid to say it. Um, it's never pleasant to lose. And I know it was very unpre- unpleasant for this president in particular to lose. Um, but the facts are the facts. And I think, you know, I saw a poll this morning, you know, <coughs> excuse me, guy, which gave me some encouragement. In Iowa, a Des Moines Register poll of Iowa Republicans, and as you know, Iowa Republicans are some of the most conservative Republicans in America. Uh, they asked, are, is your loyalty primarily to the Republican Party or to Donald Trump? And the results were 62% said the Republican Party, 26% said Donald Trump. Now, that's a big change over where we were before, um, especially in Iowa, a place that he won both times fairly handily in the general election. And so I do think there's a pivot going on here. And I think that people need to remember, we're not yet 10 months from Donald Trump leaving office. So we expect in this instant gratification society for things to happen immediately. They don't. And people are going to absorb this over a period of time. They'll get less emotional about it. And as they do, I think they'll see the truth. And the truth will help to move us, catapult us forward to doing what we should be doing, which is not attacking other Republicans like Donald Trump is doing now, but to go after the really wrong-headed and dangerous policies that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are trying to inflict on this country. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the thing. I rarely talk about the past and the 2020 election or the former president on this show because there's so much in front of us on our plate to try to fight with what's happening with Democrat control of Washington, D.C. It's an absolute disaster on almost every front. That's what we focus on here. But even if you're right, let's just say – Things keep shifting and it ends up nationally being among the Republican base. Sixty some odd percent are more interested in the well-being of the party. And then you've got, let's say, a quarter to a third of base voters who are more loyal to President Trump. The point is, from my perspective, Republicans need every single one of those people and then some to show up and vote in order to win. They can't just sort of write off. Trump's base, he is still enormously popular within the Republican electorate. He may not be as popular among the swing voters needed to win in places like Virginia, for example, or some of these other swing districts or battleground states in 2024. But if you're going to alienate sort of the MAGA base, Republicans are going to lose. So it's got to be this, you know, multiplication and addition project as opposed to subtraction and division. That's the old cliche. It is especially true right now. I'm just not sure how that balance is struck when you have, for example, if Trump is deciding that he wants to run again in 2024, he will be very, very prone to playing up, you know, 
his legacy and personal loyalty and his record and making sure that some of that transition that you were talking about, the pivot, so to speak, pivots back in his direction, that poses a challenge certainly for what you're arguing in the book, and I'm not sure what the solution would look like. Well, look, we can't we can't accommodate that if it means um, not uh, being loyal to the truth. And the thing for our party that's much more important than anything in terms of loyalty is loyalty to the truth. You know, we saw, and I write about this in the book, we saw Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley do this when the John Birch Society was trying to take over the Republican Party in the aftermath of the Kennedy election in 1960. And, you know, Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley stood up to people who were engaged in truth-denying and conspiracy theories at the time, even though they were a sizable part of the Republican base at the time. And what was the result of that? Over, you know, starting with the 1968 election, um, all the way through um, the elections of, of George Bush 41, you saw a tidal wave of Republican victories in uh, the White House, uh, and ultimately the bringing back of a, a Republican House of Representatives. So I think we have to be the party of truth again. We have to follow the example of Reagan and Buckley, who took risk but stood up for those truths. And that's what I'm doing in this book, is to stand up for the truth and to say, look, for everybody who says they're a supporter of Donald Trump, the line forms behind me. I was the guy who came out there in February of 2016 and endorsed Donald Trump. I remember. No one else was doing it. And people, some people thought I was crazy. But I could see he was going to win our nomination, and I wanted to make him a better candidate and a better president. It does not give us permission to abandon the truth. What do you make of some of his comments about you? Because you're saying, well, we don't want to be attacking other Republicans, but now there's this back and forth through statements and what have you. And I think that would probably intensify here because you've got the book coming out. You've got this special on CNN. You're raising your profile. I know you've talked about at least considering whether you might want to throw your hat again into the ring for 2024. Uh, He doesn't seem to be a fan of that. How does that go down then? You know, if you're then in a war of words with the most prominent and still most popular within the party politician within the Republican Party. I'm not going to get into a war of words with them. And I didn't last week. You know, president personally attacked me and mischaracterized the truth, both about my time in New Jersey and even about my reception at the Republican Jewish Coalition, which was actually quite enthusiastic and warm. Um, But I said, I'm not going to get into a back and forth with Donald Trump, and I'm not. But what I pointed out was that in 2013, when I ran for re-election, running on my record, I got 60% of the vote in a blue state. When he ran for re-election, he lost to Joe Biden. So let's not get into that kind of game because it's not productive for anybody. And I simply don't intend to get in the back and forth with the president. If he wants to intensify his attacks on me, um, then people will judge Donald Trump based upon those attacks. But I'm not going to respond in kind. I'm just not. Even though, as you know, I'm quite capable of doing it. Um, yet, but I mean, I'm not going to do we, that. We've seen that. Yeah. Uh, Governor Christie, I want to ask you one more political question. And then a personal one as well. We will get to those right after this short break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, joined by Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey. His new book is Republican Rescue. And Governor, I said I had another question for you on the political side of things. We have not talked about this off the air or anything like that. I had just heard a rumor 
that your better half was at least being encouraged by some to maybe think about a political future in her own right, maybe for Congress in New Jersey. Is that anything that you can discuss with us? Is that just a a totally made up rumor? Because, you know, I'm a huge fan of your wife. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. I'm going to ask Governor Christie about this as soon as I can. Look, it, it is true that there have been um, very recently people within the party in New Jersey who have approached Mary Pat about the idea of running for the House of Representatives. Um, but she's nowhere near making any kind of decision about that. Um, but he's obviously flattered to have people approach her. And she cares a lot about the country, always has. Um, but, you know, we just sent our final child off to college. Our youngest daughter, Bridget, just started at the University of Notre Dame. And so we're just experiencing, you know, the empty nest um, uh, situation. And so I think both of us are going to be evaluating, now what do we want to do with this new free time that we have, um, and how do we want to spend it most productively? But uh, listen, um, she's never told me that she wants to do that. Um, And so I won't believe it until she tells me. But I also can't deny what you heard, uh, which is that some have approached her, and that is true. Interesting. And, I mean, she's a badass, so and she's feisty. If she decides to get in, I mean, pop the popcorn and buckle up, because that could be honestly a lot of fun, especially uh, if you look at some of those districts. We talked about that a few weeks ago on the air, about how some New Jersey Democrats could be very vulnerable coming next fall. Last question, not political at all, Governor Christie, as we are approaching Thanksgiving, which is my favorite holiday. Are there any specific Christie family traditions that are particularly unusual or particularly meaningful to you around Thanksgiving? Well, no, there aren't any ones that I would call unusual to the American experience. You know, we'll have turkey and stuffing and uh, sweet potatoes and all the things that people normally have. I will be in charge of making the mashed potatoes and and the turkey. Those are my two responsibilities. That's very and big responsibilities. They are, but, you know, it's, it's the two things I can do. Mary Pat takes care of everything else, and we'll be hosting Thanksgiving at our house this year for the first time um, since 2019. Um, so we're, we're really excited that we'll have our family there and with us, and I'll be making the mashed potatoes and taking care of the turkey. And when you call my wife a badass, you're exactly right. Remember this. <laughs> People should remember this about her. She went and worked on the junk bond desk at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette as a woman in 1986 and had a 30-year career on Wall Street. And very few women in 1986 were working in the Michael Milken-created junk bond business. And so if she can survive um, having done that, politics will, I think, look like light work for her. <laughs> She's not to be trifled with. Well, have a great Thanksgiving to you and the whole family, Governor. It's Chris Christie here on the show. The new book, out tomorrow, Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Again, that is available starting tomorrow. Governor Christie, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Guy, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. It's the Guy Benson Show, and the happy hour continues right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier on the program today, we caught up with Douglas Holtz-Aiken, 
who's the president of American Action Forum. He's the former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Why is that important? Well, there's a huge multi-trillion dollar boondoggle that the Democrats are going to try, we think, to pass in the coming weeks, at least in the House. What does the CBO have to say about that? What does the significance of a CBO score, so to speak, how does that play into this wider debate? Douglas is the perfect guy to ask about all of this. So we had him on earlier, and here's part of that conversation with Douglas Holtz-Aiken. The reason I wanted to have you on is because the CBO is going to be in focus in the coming days. I saw a tweet that CBO put out that they believe that by the end of this week, they will have a score, so to speak, on this uh, non, I should say, purely partisan uh, Democratic spending bill, the reconciliation bill, build back better, human infrastructure, uh, whatever you want to call it. Some House moderates or more moderate members of the Democratic caucus had said that they weren't willing to vote on any package until the CBO had a full score. Then there were reports that some of them would be fine Maybe not with a complete final score, but at least more information from the Congressional Budget Office. If you could just share some insight into what this process looks like and to your knowledge, is it rare or has it ever happened before? If there's a multi-trillion dollar piece of legislation that doesn't have a final CBO score for that bill to get a vote in the absence of the score, that seems pretty wild to me. But I don't know if there's precedent there. Uh, there certainly is precedent. So on on the books, um, Congress should have a score of any piece of legislation prior to taking a vote. But uh, rules like that are easily waived, and they've been waived many, many times in the past, uh, even for very large uh, pieces of, of legislation. So the uh, many people thought that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act should have a full dynamic score, look at the impact on the economy, feedbacks on growth and, and revenues. Uh, that did not come out until two weeks after it was law. And so... You know, there, there's lots of precedent for even very large and important piece of legislation to move ahead without a score. I'm pleased to see that they are, in fact, waiting for a score. This is, uh, this is something where we have been reliant on administration and treasury scoring of the things that they say are in there. And there are really two issues with that. Issue number one is that the CBO exists because Congress decided they could not rely on the administration having the, the only budget estimates, and they wanted to have their own uh, institution to do that kind of hard work. That's why the CBO is there. And so I don't think they should trust the administration's estimates. They should get their guys to look at the bill. The second is the CBO scores what's written down. It doesn't score what they'd like to do, what they hope to do, or even what they say they do. They score what's written down. And you'd be stunned at the number of times there's a mismatch between what's actually in the legislative text and the way people have been talking about it. Often that changes the, the dollars involved enormously. So certainly in this instance, I think uh, we've had scores on what the administration says they think it should do. We should get scores from the CBO on what it actually does. And that's what they're up to right now. So I think that's all very interesting. And I think that's really important color as we look at what's upcoming here. And I think that the first of the two points that you made is crucial because, of course, an administration, and in this case, it's the Biden administration, but any White House would love to say, hey, we've got this big project that we've got planned and we are going to put this proposal. We'd like it to become law. Please vote on it. Here are all the wonderful, uh, wonderful things it's going to do. Uh, these bad things that you may have heard about, uh, it's not going to do those things and it's going to cost exactly what we say it's going to cost and sort of set up 
their own success using numbers that they have determined themselves. But it's within their interest to perhaps twist those numbers a bit or to shade things in a positive light or the most positive light possible in order to achieve a political end. That is not the CBO's job, right? CBO is nonpartisan, independent to actually do the math so people don't have to rely on the say-so of any administration that, you know, by definition is trying to get their own agenda through, right? I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Part of the criticism that I've heard over the years of CBO is that, yes, they analyze the numbers that are in front of them, but the numbers that are put in front of them sometimes are themselves already manipulated in order to get the CBO to say something that is desired, even if it's sort of a distortion of the true cost of a piece of legislation. And that is not unique to Democrats or to Republicans. It's sort of some of the gamesmanship that happens on Capitol Hill. Can you talk to us about sort of the gimmicks here? What should we be on the lookout for when the CBO presents their score of this bill? What do politicians sometimes attempt to make sure that their political ends and the CBO official numbers are in alignment, even if with more context in a wider lens, it's really not that simple at all? My full interview with the former CBO director, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, available at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast. Every day on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, the home stretch, a fun weekend, a busy weekend for me, plus a look ahead to going back to Florida tomorrow for the Patriot Awards. That's all next on the home stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show every day. We really do appreciate it. In fact, more on that in just a moment. But first, we'll be doing the show from Florida the next two afternoons, Tuesday and Wednesday, leading up to the Patriot Awards on Fox Nation, which is 8 p.m. Eastern time, Wednesday evening. And it will air as an encore presentation on Fox News Channel the following Sunday, November 21st. That's at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, the replay on Fox News Channel if you can't stream it live on Fox Nation Wednesday night. Pete Hegseth from Fox & Friends Weekend will be emceeing the event. We've got him on the show. We've got Tucker likely on the show later this week. We've got quite a lineup. From South Florida. I was just in South Florida over the weekend, totally unrelated, and I will head there tomorrow morning, broadcasting live from Hollywood, Florida. And heading down there even sooner. In fact, tonight, as the show wraps up, producer Christine is headed off to the airport to go and get the lay of the land. And I think as soon as she touches down in the Sunshine State of Florida tonight, I would not be surprised if Governor DeSantis immediately declares a state of emergency because Cookie has arrived again. And we know that she left quite a lot of destruction in her wake when she was just down in Miami. And so they're on high alert for Cookie's arrival in Florida later this evening. In all seriousness, though, Christine, just listening to you on the phone the last few days talking about this. You seem extremely excited to be traveling down there for the Patriot Awards. I am so, so excited because, well, one, I don't get to travel often. So that's always a nice little perk treat. 
But two, this is such an amazing event, and I'm so excited that we, our show, is a part of it. And to be broadcasting, we're going to have so many people on the show. Don't forget Joey Jones. We're going to have in person. Yep. You know, Tucker Carlson, Will Kane. Like it's and people that you don't even know yet, guy, because I haven't even booked them yet. Because I'm going to do that on the fly after I track them down. And oh yeah, you're going to be stalking people. Yeah, in in real time, in person, all over the place. And the other thing, though, here's my concern about what we've got going on over the next couple of shows. And by the way, once the doors open to the venue on Wednesday, my understanding is doors open at 5 p.m. So people can come check out the last hour of the show. So they can come over and say hello and watch the show as it goes down live in person. I'll be lingering a bit after the show to say hi to some folks. That should be a lot of fun. So if you're a Fox Nation subscriber, you're attending these awards, come say hello on Wednesday evening. What I'm worried about, though, Christine, is on these planning calls, it sounds like you are spreading yourself quite thin already. You're just offering to be everyone's producer. You're going to do this. You're going to go seeking out people for that. You're going to act as this podcast producer. I'm wondering if you're actually going to be producing this show or if you're just going to be producing every show. I'm going to try to work on your show a little bit, um, but, you know, you, you can have patience. No, I'm worried that I did overextend myself because uh, as I'm trying to book people for your show, some of these talents don't really have a schedule or a plan or a producer. And I have offered my services. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to talk to, about, about, to yeah, the boss. To a lot of people, like you're just you're volunteering yeah. yourself left and right. And so my worry is we're going to be, you know, doing the show live and your phone's going to be blowing up from an array (laughs) of Fox News stars. And you're going to have to be going to excuse yourself to go put out some fire or go get this person there. And we'll just be rudderless on the program without producer Christine. Don't worry. And then don't forget, I'm going to have to take time out for my fans. I like to call them the cookie cutters. I just just decided that today, actually. You just made that up. In the moment. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's actually really good. Don't you? Um, I'm not sh- I think maybe you could work on that a little bit further because what does that mean exactly? Cookie cutter generally means it's like basic and the same. Do you want to cast <laughs> your fan base as just kind of a bunch of uh, non-unique automaton robots? I-, I wonder if they would appreciate that. Aren't they all unique oh. and special in their own way? Yeah, I just have to find them first. Um, I haven't. How about, how about the cookie cutter? monsters? How about the cookie monsters, but in a loving way? <laughs> we could, we could. If anybody wants to volunteer to be a, a, a cookie monster, um, just let me know. Uh, and I'm you cannot, you cannot run the club, obviously, because we've seen how you've been a class mom for your own daughter, just dropping oh. balls left and right. So the the cookie monsters club would uh, fail to launch. I would say, would just you fall apart on the launch pad. Uh, if you're in charge of it. Although I will say this, this past weekend, as I referenced, I was down in West Palm Beach and then Palm Beach, Florida at the Breakers, which is a beautiful place. And I was uh, giving a speech on Saturday morning and I had a few other events to go to, but I had some free time as well. So I went down to the pool on Saturday for a couple hours because why not? And I was kind of relaxing. And a few different times when I was walking over to the bar or the restroom or whatever, Fox fans would recognize me and come say hello. It was really cool. Very nice people. This happened a number of times. And these are not people who were there for a politically themed conference. 
These were other people who just happened to be at the breakers, who happened to be there, recognized me. So that's cool. It's always just so fulfilling to meet people who watch faithfully and who are fans of Fox News. And it's just it, – it really is gratifying and everyone's always very apologetic and, oh, sorry, sorry to bother you. It, it's not a bother. It really isn't. Without our audience, there would be no Fox News. There would be no Guy Benson show. I am just incredibly appreciative of people who watch and people who listen. So it is my pleasure to hang out and say hello and answer some questions, take a few photos. I love that stuff. But one was especially memorable because I was walking, I think, back from the bar over to my little perch over by the pool, and there was a young woman, maybe roughly my age, who literally stopped in her tracks, like froze in her tracks when she saw me. And she just approached me. She said, are you Guy? And I said, yes. And not only is she a Fox fan, which is awesome, she told me I literally was just listening to Friday's show on the podcast, on the flight down here. She's from upstate New York. She's a doctor. She and her husband were just on vacation. And she is a daily listener to the Guy Benson show and was so excited just to bump into me and it was awesome to meet her. I know that she's probably listening, so hello to you and your husband. Thank you so much for saying hi. And she did, in fact, inquire about the whereabouts of producer Cookie Christine. And so I wonder maybe this doctor could be the founding member of the Cookie Monsters fan club. I kid you not. She did ask. Huh. See, they, so they, they, they want me. They're asking for me. They need me out there. Who's they? I get it. The fans, the monsters, they're all out there. They're just begging, pleading. Your public, your public awaits. I'm actually now developing a new source of concern about the Patriot Awards. What if you are not only now overcommitted to other people producing various things because in your zeal, you've offered to do far too much. You've bitten off more than you can chew. So that's detracting from our ability to do the show. And then on top of that, what happens if you are just overwhelmed by a crush of, let's call them cookie monsters, when they arrive at the location, right? So, like, Tucker Carlson will be walking through, and I'm sure he's popular with a lot of the viewers, so he's, you know, number one and all that. But then, in walks Christine. I can just imagine the crowd. Someone screams, she's here! And everyone just, Tucker all of a sudden has no one. And they've all rushed to Christine, and all of a sudden you're body surfing. They're passing you around through this huge throng. Should I be worried about this, Christine? I mean, you can be. I actually am thinking, maybe i got to fly Wyatt down. Quiet Wyatt. He, we might oh, to be your bodyguard? He could be your bodyguard, <laughs> the muscle, to keep people away. Keep your public away from you if they get a little fresh. Yeah, but then I bet you he's got quiet fans, too. They're not probably as crazy as my monsters. Right, you know, they would clap very quietly for him as he walked by. <laughs> And the way, by the way, that he would menace people if, if they were doing too much or, like, getting up in your face too much, he'd be like, don't make me roll up my copy of the Wall Street Journal. And they could use that to sort of poke and, even if necessary, prod. That's the, uh, the high-octane security situation we'd have with this crew. In other words, in other words it's like just open season. 
you, you didn't realize all this when you started the Guy Benson show, did you? You didn't realize the impact this show was going to have did not. on many, many people. Yeah, I, I did not realize a lot of things when we launched this show, and I got assigned this, uh, this longtime producer named Christine. Last thing, Christine, by the way, have you seen photos of this hotel where the, where the venue is, where this is all taking place? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's shaped like a giant guitar. That, that is the so shape cool. of the building. And it also has this elaborate series and, like, network of pools, a huge amount of pool space, pool side space. I know that you like your fruity cocktails in warm weather at a pool. If you are suddenly MIA, should we dispatch people to look maybe out by the pool where you're catching some sun and just totally falling down on the job and you know, having a few daiquiris and shirking your radio duties. Is that something that we need to think about? Is that a contingency plan to develop? So, you know, I thought about packing a bathing suit and just sneaking out for that moment, but I think I did myself a disservice by volunteering to help so many people. I don't even think I'll see the sun outside. I'm not sure I'll be able to step outside for all the volunteering I have done. For well, and in shows. fairness, in fairness... The sun is the sun, but your star will shine so brightly. Who needs the sun? The real light will be inside the Hard Rock with producer Christine and the whole crew. There's a massive Fox contingent heading south for the Patriot Awards, which is Wednesday, this Wednesday, November 17th. Live audience in attendance, live streaming 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox Nation. You should sign up, foxnation.com. Encore. On Sunday night, Fox News Channel, 10 p.m., and we will have a number of the stars that cavalcade of Fox News stars on The Guy Benson Show as we broadcast from South Florida. Looking forward to that. Safe travels tonight, Christine. Same to you. And The Guy Benson Show will hit you from South Florida tomorrow. Same time, same place, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you then. Have a great night. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.